All right. We are live. Steve, thanks so much. That was uh, Feeding the Cats by Steve Cleveland. So, um, yeah, we're going to get the show going today. Uh, We did one last week, first time, um, and I think things went pretty well. I had some audio issues that I'm hoping we can can fix for this week. Um, And a working title at the moment, Russell's Wall of Sound. Who who knows? will probably change by the week for a, <laughs> for a little while. Uh, but uh, this week we were lucky enough to get uh, uh, my friend uh, David Rovix to come on the show and um, uh, talk a little bit about um, about uh, how to start a, a successful podcast and how to keep one going um, and uh, how that ties in with... Uh, with what his, uh, you know, I think true passion is songwriting, um, traveling and, uh, um, and yeah, music. Um, so, uh, so I met David, uh, just by, um, running into him at, uh, uh, the apartment complex that we lived at. Um, I moved in and my, um, girlfriend at the time uh uh was familiar with David's music and um so introduced us and uh um and so my uh, uh relationship with David has been uh, uh mostly just you know uh in real life um and uh but David is is also one of the most prolific songwriters uh that I know um and it's just incredible uh what he's what he's built i think um which uh you know steve has been kind of doing some research and trying to get more familiar with uh with uh, david's canon so um what what are some of the things that you've well i i too am amazed at just the, uh how prolific david is and uh uh he travels internationally. He's been touring, uh, and he's internationally recognized. Uh, he's publishes articles in Counterpunch, and I think on his blog, and uh, just a prolific songwriter and writer, and uh, podcasts, and uh, uh, has great great advice for for musicians, traveling musicians, and um, so. That's a uh, that's what I know. I don't know. Well, we should probably give him, yeah, get him up and uh, give him a chance to defend himself. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> With attacks like that, <laughs> what kind of defense might I need to mount? <laughs> Great. Uh, How you doing, David? Great, Russell. How you doing? Good. The idea of me having any advice about uh, a successful <laughs> podcast it just makes me laugh because I, I think I still only have like 99 subscribers, you know. 
know if there's some kind of glitch with it. Never seems to go into the triple digits. You know? Oh, interesting. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it, it kind of like on the actual podcast um, application, I think. But uh, other other places, it gets heard a little bit more. But I think one of the things that always when in terms of any kind of advice on anything i, I think that for all of us I, i'm sure for you guys you can relate i think all of us musicians are, have this chronic you know cup half full cup half empty thing going on like we never feel like we're really successful and we mm -hmm. all but you know i mean that's i think no matter how how successful i think everybody feels like they haven't made it yet including the rock stars <laughs> it's probably true. but as a podcaster i think i definitely haven't made it yet <laughs> <laughs> well i've really enjoyed uh really enjoyed your podcast i'm kind of new to it in the last uh last year um but uh, i think it's it's been really interesting to you know hang out talk with you have these things come up and then hear it you know, like come up on your podcast like you know a, a day later mm. um yeah and uh yeah I'm, I'm i'm really impressed by your ability to uh um take an idea um make it uh personal and tell a story yeah that's that's what I am trying to do with those. I mean, um, with all my podcasts that are just like me talking, basically, it's just an essay that I wrote that that I often might have sent to Counterpunch, whether or not it's you know published there, but or that I published on Substack uh, in written form. That I also do a you know an audio version of, which is becoming more and more uh, sort of the normal thing that people are doing. A lot of a lot of people on like writing on Substack, they do a podcast version of their their uh, pieces um although during the pandemic i was also doing a lot of interviewing people and stuff um just to you know because i always wanted to do stuff like that um and never got around to it and also because i needed something to do <laughs> obviously touring was not one of the options but um yeah i mean uh in terms of writing though whether it's a podcast or or a written piece i mean you know i i find it's it's so much about telling the story or or having at least even if you're just trying to make some kind of a political point uh, or or you know make up yeah even if you're just trying to make a political point if you can do that in the context of your own personal experiences i think it makes it so much more powerful and so much more interesting to people i think we humans are basically story oriented creatures we're very musically oriented and we're very language oriented and i think uh, and the kind of language that we really are most interested in as a species is the kind that tells a story I, i'm pretty sure that's it's like totally hardwired in our like really not quite maybe not quite the lizard part of the brain but somewhere close you know the mammal uh, brain yeah the mammal brain for sure yeah um same for songwriting i would add actually i mean songwriting it's all about telling a story it's all about te you know one story i think usually not two you know just one story and and a, a good song just tells a story and 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 actually a, a good political song as they say you know they call me a political songwriter because i'm writing about history and politics and stuff so uh i think it's the same 
it's the same. Doesn't it's no different. You just don't just tell the story, and maybe the most important thing to add as far as political songwriting is don't tell us what you think and don't tell us what you feel because that's the first thing that political songwriters are apt to do is is a bang you over the head with what they think of everything. But if they do that, then it doesn't give us as the audience a chance to come to any conclusions. Usually, you know, intellectually or emotionally, that that needs to be left for the audience to do. So I think that in order to do that you just you just don't don't use adjectives telling us about what you think and feel about all this let the story communicate that or even just ask questions the socratic method is great just anything other than telling us what you think and feel because that takes our ability away in terms of you know having those thoughts and feelings it's just the way it works i think yeah yeah, that's beautifully stated. I think I, th I totally agree with all of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Stories. Yeah. Rather than, you know, uh, being a, being bombastic or telling people what to think, like you said, or, or telling people what you think, you know, like stories, we, we all, I think it is hardwired in human beings. Stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess, uh, Maybe we could jump back a little bit and uh, say, like, during the pandemic, you said you were you were doing a lot of interviews, mm. and um, but you kind of stopped doing that. Um, was that? I guess that kind of makes me think about format a little bit, and you know, that's the first thing that came to mind for me is like, there's so many ways you could you could roll a podcast. You know, what's what is something that like works and that you can continue doing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I kind of don't love doing this kind of, you know, uh, online interview, you know what I mean? They, for me, they oftentimes don't, don't look as good or feel as good as like when people are in the same room. Yeah. Um, but, uh, they're, they're getting better though. They're, yeah. Uh, that's all getting better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, uh, is that something that you kind of strayed away from for, uh, just because of like technical reasons or, or was it sort of emotionally uh, uh, taxing to have this kind of conversation? Because uh, for me, it's like, uh, you know, having a, a normal conversation it could, it is really uh, uh, brings me a lot of like joy and a lot of, you know, but but uh, but a, a, a conversation um, where you're, you know, interviewing somebody is much more intense, you know, is it, is that is that one of the reasons that you strayed away from it or is it is it more along just the technical lines it was um it was really uh i mean there the, what you say is <clears throat> definitely resonates because it was um it was a real job and it was it was uh tough i mean it was i i made it a job for myself i mean i i definitely you were doing no, several a week right yeah exactly yeah. i mean i was i was doing it four times a week i was Oof. running an open mic every monday and then doing interviews every day uh tuesday through friday uh and um and and it was it, so it I, really, I remember too, I, that you sort of casually are mentioning like yeah i wrote a, like a hundred songs or so but you know that's you know whatever <laughs> you were so humble about it writing songs like, yeah just, but I oh, of course no... i wrote you know uh, lots and lots and lots of songs i mean of i did yeah you just take it for granted that that's just you know that's what you do but for me i mean sorry just just to back it up again like i find mm -hmm. it so difficult just to get from i can write sometimes write a, a verse and a chorus that i like but mm. to get that the three verses chorus with that with the 
the you know the um, uh, uh, mm. what do you call it the the link between the bridge and the chorus right pre-chorus right. you know like pre-chorus like, right like, kind of getting those little things in there and like all the, these things I rarely do pre-choruses <laughs> and bridges although I love pre-choruses and bridges they can be so great you know and I I've learned other other people's songs that have pre-choruses and bridges and I think wow this is cool and I I only just learned at, it was called a pre-chorus like a couple months ago. Yeah. Actually, when I when I, I rewrote uh, slightly slightly rewrote uh, Richmond North of Richmond, which I think is a wonderful song, but for a few lines that can easily be changed, and um, it uh, uh, you know that that song has a pre-chorus and a bridge, uh, although it's like it sticks with the same four chords the whole time, but it's still at least according to the lyrics transcribed where I saw it, they they were saying this part is the pre-chorus and this part is the bridge. Usually they differ a bit more musically than the other yeah. parts of the song but i mean i think is in that terms song, of is that song the dreaded one five six four oh it is it is yes yeah. it is <laughs> I believe right yeah and which i've used like so many times and, right, and right. you know d- driving my daughter layla when she was younger listening to pop music all the time on the radio you know and i'd be driving her to school and listening to the you know pop radio and i realized that there is a new hit with that exact oh, one one what one five six, six four, four. Yeah. yeah, every every week there's a new pop hit using that chord progression. I don't know how that they can kind of you know make it seem new every, you know every week a new you know, but they do. It's 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 definitely I'd say more popular than one four five. Yeah, I think huh. you know one four mm. five one. Well, yeah, that one one five, five, four six. I always forget how it goes, but it's like G D E minor C. That, right. Uh, yeah. Yep. That one. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about it. I guess it just gives you. A little bit of everything ending on the four chord it sounds a little holy you know like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah is that it one, yeah five. and or that's close one. anyway one five let's see and then six you can yeah, always build. It's a great one for building the vocals. You know, for oh, oh, you can keep on going up and up and up, and it's a, it's a wonderful, uh, you know, or down. I mean, it gives you a lot of leeway for for what the vocals are going to do on top of that. There's a whole. I mean, no woman, no cry. That's a classic uh, oh, yeah. example. Yeah. Uh. In C. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you can, you know, you vary the rhythm with that one, vary the timing, vary the key, and, you know, you can totally... I've used it ten times, I think, at least ten times. And ten ten different songs. And, I mean, they're good songs. I just don't tend to do more than two of them in a given concert, though. Because I don't want to, you know, people to catch on how repetitive (laughs) my... Yeah. But you mentioned the verse chorus thing. I mean, I think... Like in Let It Be, the way that it does those chords, but but then it moves on. It, like yeah, starts it there, and, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of does some other, some mm-hmm. adds like the quick one five thing, and then it has some other parts. And such a good song. But I think, but yeah, I, I, think f- that, I think the hardest thing is coming up with an idea and then a good chorus. I mean, those are the hardest parts for songwriting, I think. And then once you have a good chorus, then writing the verses is is. I find it easy. It's a matter of telling the story that the chorus is holding together. But, you know, always getting, you know, writing a verse in such a way that it ends very sensibly with your chorus. I mean, that that chorus should be the, mm-hmm. 
and like the chorus should never just like come up like oh what's this chorus doing there you know it should it's each verse should clearly be leading to that chorus you know but mm-hmm. but the chorus you know and then sometimes a few, quite a few times actually i then i lose the chorus altogether and and just write this sort of more you know wordy dylan-esque style kind of thing where there's no chorus but i started out writing the song where everything's hanging together with a chorus which i then you know drop you know so that that can be a cool technique there's a lot of little techniques like that where you you the best part of the song is the part that maybe nobody is going to hear because you got rid of it but it was actually serving a really useful purpose as a tool for keeping the whole song you know sort of coherent you know even like a chorus like that that you may or may not actually use i just did that last month actually huh that's a cool idea so the thing that that the the seed of the song as it were uh th- which would be the chorus as you're saying you could sometimes take that out and then the song remains and it's stronger but that's like that invisible uh, yeah thing really it really yeah. is a good technique i think it often works and i mean i i just thought of the the broccoli analogy i mean like you, you need this the root of the thing to grow you know but mm-hmm. what you're going to eat is the flowers you know or that's the, the best part you know yeah Wow. So, uh, and so you do you often start with um, with music or with uh, actually? Let me even back it up further. Do you do you like um, say? Do you have like a set time sometimes? Like say like okay, don't bother me between the hours of you know noon and three. I'm going to be writing writing music, or is it is it more when inspiration strikes? Or or for for me personally, I've had the best luck with. Um, like a really um inorganic <laughs> way of, of writing songs like i've had the best luck when i've just said like okay i'm gonna be writing songs today from 12 to 2 turn off all devices notepad and a piece of paper and a guitar and just uh you know go and that's this, a good way and so anything you know, that prioritizes it i mean i think the i think the key is <clears throat> prioritizing songwriting and um and and uh you know or you know it's in my case that's that's the key anyway because i because that's the what i consider to be the most important thing i can do with my time is write a song other than like you know keeping my children happy and well-fed and whatever but you know other than that in terms of professionally or you know other than parenting you know basically you know it's it's writing songs and and luckily i don't need to think too hard about you know paying the rent because that's also obviously a really important thing to do but it is through songwriting that i do that so you know and i mean theoretically somehow i don't know i don't know how i'm paying the rent because it's through online begging that i do that but it's um but it's originally my audience exists because i'm a songwriter so i guess it's songwriting is how i somehow could say that i'm i'm making a living but um it's uh it's a matter of priority. I mean, I was hearing somebody on NPR was saying this morning, uh, there's in the average person's lifetime, there's 4,000 weeks. You will experience 4,000 weeks in between birth and death. And, and it just makes life seem so ridiculously short, which it always feels like to me anyway. But when you put it that way, it's like, you know, we don't have time for m- m- what we want to do. Whatever it is you want to do in life, you probably don't have time to do it. But, um, you know, if you prioritize... Uh, you know, you'll you'll have more time for that anyway, and and that's probably 
maybe at least you know for some of us it seems better than just doing a little of a whole lot of different things so i guess i i decided quite a while ago actually to prioritize songwriting over anything else and um yeah and i think so then that means like having time you know so the key to having time is not having a day job i mean i don't know how the hell people like beethoven did it i mean people he had 22 children and he wrote most of that all that music between four and eight in the morning you know i i don't know how that works but um yeah for me the key is not having a day job and then and then you can uh much more easily prioritize songwriting and if, if i don't have a good idea for a song one day then you know i might have a good idea for an essay or maybe i want to do some reading or but not having a day job allows me to do all those things that are part of the uh you know songwriting process you know, which involves also reading a lot of books and and being a ridiculous news junkie and in, in ways that are very unhealthy for my mental health but i do it anyway well yeah that's i was wanting to get into that um so, yes yeah, so in some ways it sounds like the the process of getting your music out has been um kind of a, a a balance of not getting too sucked into um you know whatever promotional tool you might be using if it's if it's uh social media or um mm. whatever you know um not letting that part of it like kind of uh control your life yeah that is very yeah because it'd be so easy to get and and i have done it you know and, and it's terrible for in every way i think to get sucked into having um you know arguments in the matrix you know basically you know having having um which is the title of a recent essay i wrote but like it's just so pointless and and the, they control the algorithms they control what we see and who we see and and i mean the whole thing is just such a controlled orwellian environment that the idea of taking it seriously is just ridiculous i mean mm -hmm. it's it's great to use as a platform for you know broadcasting a broadcast like this or for you know putting out podcasts or for announcing that you have a new album out or that you have a new tour out and of course you have to use the algorithms in ways that you know will work better like you know if you're at an airport and you're going somewhere take a selfie and put it on facebook because that's going to be the, the you know facebook likes that algorithm you know but i don't engage with you know people on those platforms in terms of like actually trying to have any kind of arguments or, or disagreements if somebody says something sympathetic or or has a, a friendly question that's different for sure you know but if it's uh, anybody with a political disagreement it's totally pointless to try to change anybody's mind in a comment thread on a social media platform and it's totally pointless for them to try to change my mind i mean it's, it's so insulting for them to think for anyone to think that they can say one or two sentences about an article i just wrote on palestine and this is somehow going to make me suddenly become an israel supporter i mean well, come on you know what planet are you on it doesn't work nobody's mind works that way you know we're probably all a bit more complex than that but it's it is yeah it's such a complete it's a time suck and it's a total waste of time you know all that all that but but i do but on the other hand you know when you create music or any other kind of content um you have to be able to you know you have to spend time and effort and, and you have to have a, you know knowledge about how to promote it and how to how to get it out there for sure and and uh i find myself sometimes just kind of switching gears between creating content and 
and trying to promote it, you know, but I'm much more often in the creating content mode and, and, but then, you know, sort of 80, 20 or something like that. Um, you know, but the, the time that I spend, uh, sort of getting the content out there is as strategic as possible, you know, using the, you know, the different platforms these days, X much more than anything, but, but yeah, they're all, all the different platforms have their, have their various pros and cons. Well, and once you, you get that licked, you know, where you're not, um, uh, arguing with people and you realize like, oh yes, they, they want us to argue. This is, yeah. you know, they want us to perform and, it, and all those arguments end up being performative. Um, naturally, yeah. you know, I think totally. uh, uh, just because if, you, if once you start having a, a, a conversation with somebody or an argument with somebody is one thing, but having it in front of it, even one other person, suddenly it, it changes the whole dynamic. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, m you know, much less having it in front of uh, hundreds of people, you know, thousands of people. So, um, but yeah, once you've kind of got that squared away, you've still got other of uh, you know million ways that you could get distracted right like you've you could get concerned about what videos or what podcasts or what songs right actually hit with the public and go like oh we should do more of that um or i should do more of that and kind of uh, but which is not um you know it seems to me an antithetical to wanting to move forward as a musician or as a as an as a songwriter or wanting to stay um, relevant or not relevant, but say like current, you know what I mean? With what you're doing. Uh, but instead you could kind of get sucked back into this. Well, this, this worked so I can maybe, have you ever found yourself falling into that before where you said like, um, like one of your most popular songs, um, St. Patrick's day battalion. Like, have you, you know, have you, has it, has, did that draw you into maybe wanting to write more songs along those lines or like write something with that, with that rhythmic feel or that chord progression on that subject, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think, uh, I think like with a song like St. Patrick Battalion, um, it like the 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 success of that song in my thinking is that there's a lot of people around the world singing it and they have no idea who wrote it and they assume it's a traditional song that wow. some anonymous person wrote in the 19th century and that's the best compliment you know that's, that a you know somebody coming out of the folk idiom like can get you know and and in the early 60s in the folk scene a lot of songwriters apparently didn't even admit to having written songs they were singing because it was so much cooler to, for people to think that it's not original, that it was written a long time ago. Because everybody at, in the early 60s, you know, they were in the Greenwich Village scene. Uh, they're going they're going for that sound, many of them anyway, going for that old, you know, old tr traditional sound. And that that's definitely what I was going for with that song. And that's what I'm going for with quite a few songs about history that I've written. Like, I want them to sound like they could have been written in the 19th century. So, but... Uh, so I, I mean, I, I did keep on writing, trying to write songs like that, but not because that one kind of became viral, but just because I like trying to write songs like that anyway. But in, I think, um, the, the other, the sort of like 
you know, writing for your audience, you know, is um, it's a it's a really complicated phenomenon there because and I, and I do it all the time and I think it's a it's a great thing to do although I'll, it can be so problematic at the same time like depending on who your audience is or what you're going for like if you're going for commercial success and I've known I've never had commercial success in in the you know in any kind of sense that it's usually meant like you know any a hit or, or whatever or, or you know enough money to buy a house or you know that kind of thing uh, so i consider myself lucky to be paying the rent but like commercial success i don't know if i would qualify for having had commercial success but even among those who have had uh, commercial success um now i have it this um where, where, where remind me what we we're talking about here this <laughs> Oh, just getting caught up with like, um, with making content for your audience versus making like, uh, yeah. for your. That's where it was. I, I got derailed there. This, Which this I, I get so wanting to do both. You know, um, like wanting to to like you're like oh cool this is this uh, people like this maybe I should do more of it. You know, exactly. That, that seems very natural to me. Exactly. So, so I do that. But then the question of like, you know, so the people who are going for commercial success, they, they want to have an audience that will like um, what they're doing. And, and they also know that they can't sing about political stuff. Uh, because they're not going to get a record deal that way, <clears throat> and you know, or at least very unlikely that they're going to be this niche like Rage Against the Machine, where somebody wants to sign you even though you're radicals. You know, that doesn't usually happen. You know, so they know in the folk scene at Club Passim, where I used to go to open mics in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for many years in the, you know, in the 80s and 90s. Most of those songwriters never write about politics because they want to get a record deal and they want to have a mainstream audience. And, you know, they'll sometimes maybe one, you know, every once in a while write some kind of like mildly political song about a subject that everybody, you know, pretty much agrees on or that kind of thing. But, you know, they they usually don't want to stick their necks out because they're writing for their audience, you know, and 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 I'm doing that, too, but not. uh you know, but my audience, I, I have no, you know, I have never had any kind of real dreams of commercial success. And my audience is a completely different thing. So, but it is definitely the case that when there's stuff happening, like during the Second Intifada, um, you know, in 2000 um, in Palestine, and, you know, I know I knew so many people who are going over there who are involved with the international solidarity movement, and I knew so many Palestinians and and in the diaspora and people involved with protests, and I was singing at so many protests, and so you know all that you know combined made me want to keep on writing songs on that particular subject, you know, which was um, and there's so much to write about, and and uh, and it all sort of it's like a snowball effect thing because you you meet more Palestinians than you meet more people with amazing tragic stories that you, you can easily imagine, you know, could make a great song. And so it's a real, you know, it kind of, once you get into it, it just, you know, keeps on happening more, but it's not like, um, not like there aren't other profoundly important things I could be writing about, <clears throat> but, but it does, it, it's, I'm definitely writing for my audience in that sense. Yeah. Um, wow. That's such a heavy, uh, a heavy responsibility to write a song um, representing somebody's uh, somebody's real real life tragic experience. 
yeah i i i became uh aware i mean i was aware of of the israel palestine uh situation before but when i really kind of became you know kind of made up my mind about it was when uh rachel corey was killed mm-hmm. um who was uh uh somebody that i grew up with um and was uh not necessarily like a close friend but was like a we had some interesting uh times like you know i i think uh you guys were around the same age and from the same town yeah absolutely yeah grew up grew up together and we went to school together um at at different times like it i think in like middle school i knew her and then i think we went to different high schools and then went to college together at, at evergreen um but i think like sometime in there like in in high school i, I think it might have been like end of high school we uh reconnected and and like spent the day like uh at at the beach doing like psychedelics <laughs> and like you know uh great and i th- i think I, I i introduced her to um the the phosphorescence phosphorescence you know you could throw the throw a rock into the water or or, or you know move the water around in some way and it would make the water glow yeah. and like so we i remember we played with that for for an hour or more <laughs> you know wonderful um and then uh uh took her home and uh and her mom uh you know yelled at me before like i could say a thing and uh um, for being home too late yeah for being home you know really late and uh <laughs> and then so then uh but then i you know i come many years later to hear about all this this entire other life that she uh you know was living and had lived like uh you know during that and after that Mm -hmm. um this yeah pretty incredible uh force that that she was and and writer that she became and yeah just you know a wholly different from from how i knew her anyway when she uh when she was killed it just was like okay they're they're doing it to americans now like it's and it, it was a was a pretty big national story, I believe, for mm-hmm. for a while there. Um, but uh, yep. these days, I, I don't know as many people that have that have heard of Rachel. Uh, no, and also she was killed only just days before <coughs> the U.S. invaded Iraq, so it was um, uh, quickly um, over. Uh, what eclipsed by by bigger news in terms of world headline event kind of stuff but uh certainly like everybody in palestine knows rachel corey everybody knows her name and her parents to this day huh oh yeah everybody and i mean certainly when i was there i mean of course in the past few months uh the events that have taken place have changed everything and who knows whatever anybody will remember by next year because you know we're experiencing it i mean this is a genocide we're watching unfold here and uh that will make probably anything else seem you know irrelevant i guess but when i was in the west bank in 2005 
Rachel Corey's uh, picture, her image, her, uh, you know, in some form or another, photographs, artwork, everything like that was everywhere. Um, and so was uh, imagery of the uh, leader of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, who had just been assassinated as well, uh, around the same time that she was killed. So those were the two, um, Abu Ali Mustafa and uh, Rachel Corey, the, their, their uh, faces were everywhere. It's that makes me feel good to to hear that they were that she was still around. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and also the the the, the deep appreciation that people in Palestine have <clears throat> for internationals who uh, came to do that kind of thing was uh, you know could not be overstated. It was uh, deeply appreciated, you know, there for sure, and of course still is with all the all the internationals uh, risking their lives and losing their lives in Gaza right now, trying to keep the, some of the hospitals uh, in some state of uh, functionality. Dr. Mads Gilbert from Norway comes to mind. Beautiful man. Yeah, there's not a whole, a whole lot of you, right? I mean, um, I, I can't think of very many musicians that, that have written uh, as strongly about that as as you have do, do you can you name some others it's one of those subjects that even the um a lot of the more political music, musicians uh often avoid um and uh you know for for reasons of not wanting to kill their careers entirely because mm -hmm. uh of the nature of the left in in, in this country anyway um yeah, I guess Roger Waters is, you know, he's very outspoken. I oh, he's a he's wonderful exception. songs about it, but yeah, very yeah. outspoken at least. And, oh, and yeah, it and seems they're rare. out there. It seems rare, though. It's actually. rare. Think, you know, think about some of the more well-known songwriters, and it's like, well, what, why aren't you writing about this, you know? I mean, Sinead O'Connor probably would. She was quite outspoken about Palestine, but she's gone. Mm. And then there's, I mean, one of the best and most eloquent um, and quite popular as well is a hip hop artist uh, in uh, London named Loki. Oh, yeah. I follow him on uh, X, as it's called now. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah, he does. He does brilliant uh, songs. Okay, cool. Yeah. He's in London, you say? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I should have other... Um, yeah, people on the top of. I mean, you know, well, it's uh, it, ah, just uh, who else is well, there doing this? Kind of stuff? I mean, lots of people. In, yeah, yeah Gilad doesn't do words, uh, but right. you know, he he definitely writes song, uh, tunes that are themed uh, that are uh, supportive of Palestinians. And in Arabic, of course, um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of artists that do. I mean, although just like in in. <laughs> In the Arab-speaking world, just like in the Anglo sphere, um, the you know musicians mostly don't write about politics, and they get uh, criticized by people like us for not writing about <laughs> politics. You know, it's very much the same phenomenon, which has been a very um, interesting. The experience that I've had actually just over the past two weeks after I wrote a song, when when the you know. Ansar Allah, the the Houthi army, uh, they have been raiding uh, ships bound for Israel and and on in the Red Sea and and uh, really disrupting uh, global shipping uh, in a really big way. And I wrote a song uh, thanking them for their efforts. And I have uh, since been in touch with a whole lot of people in Yemen. 
uh, which has been uh, fascinating. Um, mostly I'm clicking uh, translate on Arabic uh, uh, tweets, you know, uh, people are writing me uh, actually messages like to me, but they're writing in Arabic. So then I, I just, you know, but luckily with Google, it's easy to translate. Although I'm finding that it's uh, quite a lot of the time that the messages don't translate well. And I, and I'm, and I realize the reason is because they're using um, all kinds of cool, um, a, a sort of, um, what is the word like you know religious uh, references that google apparently doesn't know about like google got one of them really well when uh, one guy said the most one of the best compliments i've ever received from anyone uh, he said uh, sometimes moses grows up in the house of the pharaoh which is wow i mean what a nice thing to say about somebody um well, obviously, he's referring to me being from the United States and still being uh, on the side of, of justice. Um, but uh, and I didn't even realize that Moses was adopted by a pharaoh. I mean, my, my knowledge of the Bible is incredibly limited, but their knowledge is so deep and they're constantly referring to, you know, biblical references all the all over the place. So, yeah. Well, that was uh, a, a minute ago. You mentioned um, uh, that. Uh, the nature of the left you know, would, could, could be, uh, you know, crushing to a career uh, if you chose to write about certain subjects. Yeah. Um, how's has that uh, how's that played itself out for you? Have you have you seen that um, that really happening? Uh, like. Uh, um, yeah, I, I actually I shouldn't ask because I, I, I know because I yeah just listening to your to your pod like you know that's one of the things that I've really appreciated is that you've talked about sort of the bigger picture of of what's going on um, in you know in the left right now uh, and you know talked about your personal experience with that how um, how you've been targeted and how you've been called. Uh, been called uh things that i know you are not uh um okay, surreptitiously and online and even uh i've heard posters being put up or something like that um anyway um uh, mm -hmm. do you and do you think that 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 has to do with the with what you chose choose to write about as a songwriter and what you choose to to speak about it's hard it's hard to say with some of that kind of behavior because um, this because w with a lot of this kind of stuff, I mean, we now are living in, you know, for quite a while now, but especially, you know, since um, social media, particularly, uh, we're living in this period of where it's nothing ever seems to be good enough and everybody everybody seems to always be subject to some kind of criticism for some kind of transgression and and the sort of nature of the discourse seems to be always around harping and complaining and and accusing and it's not at all about like building a movement or bringing people together or solidarity or or you know building alliances and it's like all about the opposite of that it's like how can how can i find a way to describe my identity so that it is more unique and different and more more oppressed than yours and and then i can talk about the importance of sticking up for my identity which may be shared by like three other people or you know it's just this whole incredibly atomized um kind of direction that things are going and so it also you know, seems as soon to be very you, much like the, the crit critic's mind yeah 
mm-hmm. you know that yeah the, we're all that critics now that everyone you know just kind of lazing back and 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 watching what other people do and, and going like, yeah i don't like that i don't like that and instead of like actually trying to create your own um arguments to the contrary <laughs> Yeah, or or trying to build anything. I mean, the whole if you're if you think of yourself as a leftist or as somebody, you know, then usually that means you, you know traditionally you are interested in building a social movement that is sticking up for the interests of the majority population, or whatever we're calling it, the ninety nine percent, the working class, or whoever. You know, that has always been what the left has been about. But that now it's 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 things have changed, and and that's been I think uh, a process that has had to do partly with the influence of postmodernism in academia, but I think also um, to no small degree it's been the influence of the the social media platforms and the way they run themselves and the algorithms uh, that that control our uh, lives. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of different factors. So postmodernism, I mean, that was something, like I went to the Evergreen State College and that was something that was that was encouraged, you know, like I think in across uh, a lot of different, um, uh, a lot of different uh, uh, subjects, people were sort of pushed into, uh, I think, you know, in different classes, I was, I was forced to read at least four Michel Foucault books, um, which I can hardly remember. any of it <laughs> you know it was, uh, and and he's one of the more more intelligible of the yeah. of the of the lot but but yeah it's 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 interesting that you should say that cuz i i've always uh i've always I'm pushed with chomsky over foucault there you know yeah yeah me too <laughs> uh, i and i read chomsky as well uh he's I just not remember a postmodernist like, excuse me he is not a postmodernist right exactly yeah his his writing is clear um I guess uh, what I always kind of thought was that it was that I was in a, a complete bubble. You know, I, I always thought that things that were were spoken about there at Evergreen or, or yeah. you know in the in the uh, conference rooms and stuff were just uh, a little bubble that would kind of never go out into the into the mainstream until but, Facebook and Twitter came along. Yeah, exactly. The, but the, with the social media stuff, it's that that whole idea of this this sort of uh contextualized language uh yeah. surrounding social behavior uh and then of, insulting anybody else who doesn't use it properly right and i noticed it like you know before social media but after i was in in college like cert, certain terms that went um you know in style and out of style like i think uh the idea of a, of a microaggression came in like after i was in school um and I, I never quite understood what it was. I kind of got what it was getting at, but it also seemed like, aren't there macroaggressions all the time? That we, aren't there <laughs> macroaggressions we might want to be concerned with? I mean, yeah. not to downplay the significance of being subject to constant microaggressions going through life as various people, as is the reality for lots of people. And the, I mean, all these things are are relevant. It's just a matter of like, you know, the context and, and, uh, and not losing track of the context, which is what uh, you know, I think, you know, so many aspects of, of social media and postmodernism and, and uh, you know, the 
the contemporary left is all about losing track of the context because the context is, you know, for those who have already lost track of it, I think, you know, bears reminding folks that we live in a country uh, just like many other countries, but we live in a country where one percent of the population owns the vast majority, more than 50 percent of the country. That's our reality is this is this this monolithic sort of form of capitalism that has the majority of the population, the majority, two thirds of the population living basically hand to mouth, not knowing how they're going to be doing in a few months as prices keep rising. And one percent of the population owns most of the country. That's our reality. And there is no other kind of possible difference between humans that even comes close to that reality to that disparity there is no racial or gender or any other kind of disparity that even comes close to that disparity in any possible way that you can possibly measure it if you're at all being intellectually honest the class divide in this country is absolutely overwhelming overpowering that's the context we're in and the postmodernists lost that track of, of that reality a long time ago the you know the the marxists the socialists the anarchists obviously you know or not the the modern anarcho-puritans are another form of postmodernists. but the traditionally the anarchists and the socialists and the communists all what they have in common historically is understanding that this the context is this this uh, capitalist system that is uh, you know that we all are being divided and ruled by but now we just divide our and rule ourselves, you know, through, uh, you know, social media nonsense, you know, calling each other names and all this kind of stuff. But I but, all you know, having said all that, I'm not sure how much of that has anything to do with necessarily my uh, career in, in this country being, you know, sort of stifled by the left, because the left also like even the traditional left before all the postmodernists and before uh, all the social media attackers and all this uh, also had a. Uh, Zionist problem, Zionism problem, you know, I mean, there's been uh, uh, sort of ardent supporters of Israel, as they call themselves, uh, pr in, in prominent places on the American left uh, ever since the state of Israel, I think, has been formed. And, and, and that, I think, has um, certainly uh, kept me from ever, ever once having a gig at a folk festival in this country. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Huh. I mean, I played it. I, you know, at the time that I was, you know, back when college gigs existed, like so, back so, when you were started. So you, you never, you, you have never played like a, 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 a large folk festival in this. Not so even you, a small one. Huh. <clears throat> I mean, Pete That's Seeger surprising. invited me to the Clearwater Festival one time, but I was actually going to Ireland. Uh, so, mm. that, and this was, you know, before I had a musical career when I was quite young. But you know, he th this was that was the only I was the closest, and that was also before I ever wrote a song about Palestine. And that was 1996, and that's the closest I ever got <laughs> to uh, that, uh -huh. playing at a folk festival in this country. Wow. I played at folk festivals in Canada and in Europe, including really big ones, but um, not in this country. And and I think um, that. It has a lot to do with it, but you know, I, you know, and it was at a time, it, you know, twenty years ago, I was I was playing at on college campuses all over the country, you know, but for small student groups and and playing for the anti-war movement and in all, you know, there was lots of places on the left and on college campuses and in culture and society in general where I could be welcome, even with my 
pro-Palestine songs and views. But um, the the sort of less uh, political elements of of uh, society that are still that are still you know sort of where the, where there's still left influence and 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 uh, where you can see the kind of left discourse that is present in in a lot of the sort of in the program i mean talking about the folk festivals in this country they are not run by conservatives generally you know mostly you know some of them are actually but uh, mostly they're they're run by you know politically progressive types but there's a limit to that and all you need is one israel supporter on the board of a folk festival to shoot down having me ever playing at it you know that's incredible what do you suppose that um, that influence comes from? Is it is it just is it just that uh, um, is it just that terrible like to be called uh, anti-Semitic? Is it I mean is that is it is it carried that that much weight? Is that kind of what it is, or is it, are there other avenues? You know, is, is that the 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 worst kind of pressure? Like to because I, I I I mean I would hate to be called uh racist or hateful or or sexist anti-semitic i mean i i, I just yeah. would hate to have that uh come out about me i would i would do a lot to avoid uh, exactly being called that <laughs> would, yeah it's a terrible know, I, I, thing. I, I honestly I, I have avoided a lot to to uh to, you know to not be called that um uh i yeah, I think that it's been a real hindrance as far as even f forming some of the um, the ideas or, or writing the songs. You know, I've I've I know how I feel about certain subjects, but I I, I kind of have almost I maybe programmed myself not to to write about those things or not to uh, go that far down that road because I can't think of how I would uh, how I would present that. I guess. Yeah, it's really. I mean, <clears throat> yeah. There's a, there's a lot of things you just yeah I, I, that I think a lot of us, most of us, all of us maybe are, are self censoring to one degree or another because we don't want to be accused of one thing or another or another. And and I think to, to some extent that's a very healthy thing because it it just shows that you're being cautious and and also like. Um, uh, there were many, many years when I had opinions about what was going on in Palestine, and I never wrote a song about it. Um, but it was just pretty early on in my career that I did write a song about it. But you know, I was very busily uh, performing all over the country in the in the throughout the late '90s and last half of the '90s or so, and without ever singing about that because I had no songs about it. I had opinions, but no songs. And then, uh, but it was in 2000 that I wrote a song, and then. Um, that uh, it had an influence in all kinds of ways, mostly positive. I mean, I'd say because it's not like I was having success as a, you know, playing in in uh, mainstream circles anyway. You know, up till that point, but the possibility of having such such success was, I think, pretty much eliminated as soon as I wrote that song. But I think it's not just about people being scared of being accused of being anti-Semites, although that is a big part of it. But it also is uh, it with this particular thing, uh, this particular phenomenon. Uh, it has a lot to do with Jews being uh, actively a part of the folk scene and on the boards of folk festivals. And um, about 60% uh, of uh, Jews um, in this country uh, identify with the state of Israel. 
uh, it's forty uh, percent don't, and and that's great. And I'm one of that forty percent. It's nice to say that I'm not part of a small minority of Jews that uh, rejects uh, that considers the state of Israel an apartheid state. That's forty percent of American Jews consider uh, Israel to be a, an apartheid state, according to a, a poll I heard about recently. But that leaves the other sixty percent that doesn't, and uh, those are the fun, those are the folks who have uh, you know members on the on the folk, uh, you know, boards and uh, donate money to the community radio stations and uh, Harvard and whatever, you know. Yeah. Wow. Um, and that uh, and that didn't deter you from uh, from taking that subject on. <laughs> I mean, it probably it it. I don't I don't know if it deterred me, but it it deterred me enough uh, up until the point where I did take it on <clears throat> that I by the time uh, it I did take it on I knew what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, by the time I did take it on, I I had already read books uh, on the subject and 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 was and had been also following the news uh, from the Middle East since like 1982 or so. So I I knew. Um, you know, but so I, I definitely, I'd say the deterrent effect was actually really positive in my case because I could have written something not very good on the subject, you know, a few years earlier. But waiting until I really knew what I was talking about to do it was was a, was a good thing because it's a it's a very complex. I mean, many aspects of of the whole thing is are very simple. Actually, it's about land and freedom. It's about uh, dis, dispossession. It's about settler colonialism. But on the other hand, all that is also very complex. The history is very complex. The politics are very complex. And if you don't know um, a lot, uh, then it's a very hard conversation to get into because you're going to be dealing with people who have very different opinions and also know a lot about the subject. So you got to you got to know what you're talking about. Or else it's probably best to, you know, avoid the subject because it's otherwise you'll just, you know somebody's going to make an argument you can't respond to because you don't know what they're talking about, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's not like you need to speak Hebrew or anything, but you do need to know some history. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and that, that relates to songwriting generally, right? That uh, you, you kind of want to know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and, you know, although you can write a great song that, sounds completely convincing like you totally know what you're talking about even if you don't and the key there is to know that the person whose article you're basing your song off of knows what they're talking about so if you if you trust that journalist and you write a song based on their article and don't change any of the details and don't make anything up and make sure that any detail in the song comes directly from that article and don't make any assumptions that you know anything about what you're writing about that isn't in that article, you know, then you can write a good song from an article. Um, and, and it can really work. And I, you know, I've done it. Um, and I've also failed to do it too, by adding a detail that I didn't, you know, research that wasn't in the article, you know, that I assumed and, and then finding out that, you know, some really ridiculous thing that I should have known about, like Muslims pray with their shoes off, you know, I mean, you know, these are. This is this. That's just the example that from the song I wrote like 22 years ago, where I made a reference uh, to people being barefoot, but it wasn't because they were, uh, you know, praying. It was because they, you know, they were they were in destitution. You know, but this 
it's an important in in that that particular song it would have been an important thing to know and and to you know to to not make this line didn't really work you know <laughs> because you know they're always praying with their shoes off so you can't you know so it didn't you know but that's that's the kind of thing where it, but if i had stuck to you know everything else in the song worked you know except for that line so you can, you know, you don't need to be an expert, I think, to, to write a good song about, you know, history or, or current events, as long as you're uh, staying very true to a, you know, a text of some kind that is, you know, based on reality. So who are, uh, who are some of your, your favorites? Um, I, I, I really like uh, what you do, you know, not just with the words for your songs, but, uh, but harmonically and melodically, um, it seems like you you are always changing it up like I, I can it it always sounds like a david robux song to me um but th- definitely i can tell that you get kind of enamored by certain chords certain progressions um and like sometimes certain scales i can kind of tell that you're like they're like i won't you know it seemed like you were like w- working a, a new a newer idea into that that song and kind of using you know um, having the song be sort of like a, a way to express that. Do you have a, who are some of your, your, your favorite, uh, people? Who are some of your influences? One of the biggest was, um, Jim Page from Seattle. Mm. Phenomenal songwriter that I first uh, discovered when I was like 19 and, um, got off, uh, somebody dropped me off in Seattle at the Pike Place Market and I, and and there he was busking and and it was just a mind-blowing experience i just i had never heard of him i had never did never knew that there's anybody writing songs like that today uh you know i had i was already familiar with uh bob dylan and phil oaks and and uh a lot of other songwriters from from the 60s who i who were also big influences but in terms of more contemporary living well dylan's alive but you know other lesser known songwriters jim page big time and then late much later in life i discovered like maybe in uh, 23 years ago now um rob johnson r-o-b-b rob johnson from brighton england another absolutely phenomenal uh songwriter in the english Mm -hmm. language but then like musically i've been uh definitely uh well very influenced by irish traditional music and bluegrass and um afro pop which i listened to for years constantly um (laughs) but and i never even bought a single afro pop album because it was bill watkins at that morningtown restaurant who was an afro pop uh, fiend and and uh, uh we listened to other things he introduced me to utah phillips dave lipman various other musicians but afro pop was what he listened to most of the time and i mean and um, and a lot of it, I don't know if, even if it actually made that t- that 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 term. I don't know even know if we're using that term anymore. But in the '90s, that's what they were calling it, like uh, Tori Kunda and Baba Mal and the Mal poets. And, sure. You know. you know, speaking of political songwriters, I think uh, Fela is one of the best. Ah, yeah, yeah, fantastic. Right. <laughs> Fela Kuti. Yeah. I, yeah. I had a question also. I'm really fascinated. Well that you had a connection with Pete Seeger. I know that Russell has a connection with uh, Utah Phillips. And I, I was wondering also if you had ever uh, come in contact with uh, uh, John Tudell, you know, the spoken word artist. And yeah, I'm a am, big American fan Indian of his. Vision. I love his work, and, and I never met him. Although mm-hmm. uh, Jim Page was a good friend. Of That's his, what I actually. thought. I thought they even maybe wrote, co-wrote a song. 
Okay. That might be. I don't remember. I also knew Utah. I love Utah, and was he was awesome. also long before I ever met him. I was a he was another one of the major influences as a songwriter on me for sure. Cool. He's a wonderful songwriter. Yeah, yeah, and a lovely guy. And he actually talked like that in reality. Like it wasn't just a he stage sure act, right? And crazy. I mean, I, I I seriously had to look up about one out of every five words he would use. You know, I mean. The number of old hobo terms that, that he used in his everyday vocabulary was just astounding. I, yeah. I, I really had no familiarity with so much of that. <laughs> yeah, I remember when uh, when I um, uh, met Utah first is when we were we were playing a show, at I think, at the Capitol Theater in Olympia uh -huh. um, when uh, Utah came and played. And uh, we were warming up beforehand, so... we. So we you played and with Brendan? Uh, yeah with with Brendan Phillips as uh, uh -huh. Utah's son um and uh so I had I was kind of the multi-instrumental guy for that for that show and so I had like a glockenspiel and a slide guitar and anyway so I was, we were getting the 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 microphone set for the the glockenspiel and I was kind of giving it some taps and he he walked over and he said glockenspiel glock glocken glocken glock glocken glockenspiel, glockenspiel. <laughs> And he kind of walked away going, glug, glug, glug. Okay. <laughs> I was like, okay. And so, so he came back after we had, after we had done the sound check and he's, he's like, did you know that, uh, that Glockenspiel in, in German means uh, good speech? Uh, um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful sound. It's like a, like a woman singing like that. A beautiful, beautiful speech. And I was like, oh, interesting. Is that true? And he's like, no, I made it up completely. <laughs> Great. <laughs> So he That's just awesome. gone away, gone away, and so I, you know, decided he was going to trick me with this, with this ridiculous thing. Oh, great, <laughs> great! Yeah, That's classic. Yeah. yeah, he was, uh, he was brilliant. This is um, in the south, in the southern U.S., and in, um, well, I guess, the southeast, and uh, and in Ireland, uh, that kind of thing is so common, and I, I, I would fall for those just all the time, you know, until I started realizing this was like thing they did you know it's like tell a story until you you know and make it more and more ridiculous until you finally eventually no longer believe it uh you know but they try to keep you going usually you know until it gets more and more ridiculous and they're waiting for the point at which you realize you're being lied to <laughs> it's, it's very it can be very entertaining when done well you know very annoying when done badly i find uh all right, well, David, thanks so much for uh, for coming on and um, and uh, chatting with us today. This was uh, this was great. Um, hopefully, we can we can do it again sometime. Um, trying to keep trying to keep things kind of on on the short and sweet end, and we are we're already over an hour here, which is uh, time flies. Really but I think that flies. was absolutely really uh, wonderful. I really enjoyed that, and I and I think the name of your podcast should be uh, Talking Shop with Russell and Scott because it was. Uh, it's uh yeah i mean because we were that was largely talking shop i would say and, and yeah, uh, you're right and it's also like um yeah it's the kind of interview i've often thought about doing with other artists and never got around to but it's the kind of interview that i would want to listen to if, <laughs> about with another artist so i hope oh, it really? goes well very cool yeah thank you so much man right, yeah, thanks david thank you thank yeah. you cool i'll uh i'm gonna bump you out of here and we're, we're gonna play that uh play us out with some feeding the cats so thanks so much, David Robix, joining us. Thank you.
Bye-bye.